especially with new leaders, when they end up in a leadership role for the first time, they quite often don't promote themselves mentally. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the book, The First 90 Days is a, is a book that I often quote. And that, that term that I just used about they didn't promote themselves came straight from that book. And, and what that means is, you know, when you move into a new role, you have to take inventory of what I did in my previous role that led me to success. And yep. if any of that I can continue to do in my next role, that will lead me to success. And there's quite often new leaders take what made them successful as an individual contributor and try to ramp that up yeah. as they become a leader. So they now become the super salesperson on the team or the heavy closer or, or whatever term you want to want to use there. Yeah. And don't really recognize early on that the real leverage in their new role is taking the six, seven, 10 people that report to them, coaching, developing, inspiring, holding accountable. Because if you can take 10 people and you can get 2% growth out of 10 people, yeah. that's far more than you're ever going to do as an individual. Welcome to the Sales Career Leveling Podcast. Each show is dedicated to the sales professionals that are driven to advance their professional sales careers. Whether that be growing in their sales, management, or leadership roles, or climbing any part of the sales org chart. Each week, we'll be discussing sales, sales management, and sales executive leadership topics, as well as the sales career advancement, best and worst practices we should all be aware of. So, Bill Walton, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing well, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have the conversation. I appreciate it. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. So, today you're joining us from Dallas, right? Correct. Which part? Uh, in Frisco. It's a suburb about 25 miles north of downtown Dallas. Beautiful area. I love it Frisco. Is. So that puts you on, on, on uh, the north side of, of Dallas. We're several, a few hours drive south from uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth region. I'm in San Antonio. So you guys probably got a whole lot more cold and, and snow in this recent Texas trund- tundra episode that we had, yes? Yeah, we did. We had a couple of days where the snow filled up the streets and you couldn't tell where the streets started or stopped and where the curbs were. And uh, that actually stayed for several days, which is unusual. Normally we'll have a, a light dusting that goes away. Yep. And, and that's, that's the best kind of snow in my opinion. Um, but yeah, this one stayed and I actually had to shovel and did you guys lose power at all? Uh, we were fortunate in that we did not. Uh, we happen to live very close to a fire station, and we believe that that kind of saved us a little bit. Yeah. Uh, that we're probably on the same grid with that fire station. Yeah. But uh, a lot of people in this general area did have some intermittent power outages. Yeah. We didn't lose power. Uh, we did lose heat because we found out that our, our heat pump hadn't been working. But in Texas, we use it so infrequently that we didn't know until we needed it that it wasn't working. So, Several thousand dollars later, got a new heat pump, and uh, we're doing fine. Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you're here, and today we're going to be talking about 
you know, sales management and sales effectiveness. Now, over your career, what I had seen is that you've gone from obviously sales individual contributor to sales management to sales leadership at that VP of sales level. And the, the part that kind of struck me as, as being even more interesting was you actually led sales effectiveness. And, and I'd kind of like to, to dig into that a little bit. And, and this career progression and, and diversity really got me interested in, in having you in this podcast to discuss as much as we can about some of those topics. But I guess before we start, give us a quick overview of your career to date. Well, Michael, as you had mentioned, um, you know, I'd spent 25 years with Granger, and I started off with Granger as an individual contributor, and then had the opportunity to move into a management role on the operations side of the Granger business. And from that point, I moved into a district general manager role, which had op operational and sales responsibilities for a given geography. Yep. And I really relocated a lot with Granger. And one of the reasons that I relocated was, you know, I was able to develop the ability and the reputation for helping turn around troubled markets. And so all of my relocations, for the most part, were designed to go into markets, identify what the cause of the underperformance was, turn it around, and then I got moved to other markets as a result of that. So it actually became a, a pretty fun, pretty uh, fulfilling type of an experience to be able to go into underperforming markets and, and help figure out what was taking place and turn them around. Yeah. Um, after a great 25 years with Granger, I ended up going to Ace Hardware. Uh, at Ace Hardware, I was originally responsible for leading the Western half of the United States. But in pretty short order, uh, I moved into leading the business-to-business -business, uh, enterprise for the organization. Um, as you can imagine, coming from Granger, I think I had a lot to offer to Ace in terms of market strategy, target market, go-to-market execution, planning, value proposition, creation. And so um, spent some time at Ace and, and had a lot of success in leading the B2B team there. Once I left Ace, I ended up going to Eric's North America. And so <clears throat> that organization's based out of the Netherlands. Mm. And I led the Gulf Coast part of the United States for Eric's. And then I got asked in pretty short order to also pick up the Southeast. And so I had the Gulf Coast and the Southeast for Eric's and full P&L responsibility for both. Uh, I then ended up at Ritchie Brothers, um, kind of a detour of my distribution experience. But Ritchie Brothers ends up being a really good organization. They're in the heavy equipment uh, auction business. And unfortunately, COVID hit and I got impacted by a COVID restructure at Ritchie Brothers. But um, yeah, that's a quick synopsis of my career and where I've been. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, not fun uh, having to do with uh, being part of a reduction in force, for sure. No, it's not. But you know what? It's something that happens on occasion. And, you know, I put it in the perspective. It's the first time it's ever occurred to me in my career. So I'm pretty fortunate to say that's the first time ever. Yeah, I, I've been involved in, in an occasional riff here and there. And it's not, uh, not a pleasant situation, but a great opportunity to figure out where you're at, where you want to go. Because sure um, you, you've got the time finally to, to reevaluate. Throughout that career, 
you, you've done sales management, you did the effectiveness, you did the leadership. I, I'm curious about your take on one of the areas that I, I often see lacking in sales management or the management and development of individual contributors, and, and that's coaching and development. I'm curious, first of all, have you seen that same deficiency within sales management uh, individuals? Yes, I have seen that. And especially with new leaders, when they end up in a leadership role for the first time, they quite often don't promote themselves mentally. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the book, The First 90 Days is a, is a book that I often quote. And that, that term that I just used about they didn't promote themselves came straight from that book. And, and what that means is, you know, when you move into a new role, you have to take inventory of what I did in my previous role that led me to success. And yep. if any of that, I can continue to do in my next role that will lead me to success. And there's quite often new leaders take what made them successful as an individual contributor and try to ramp that up as they become a leader. So they now become the super salesperson on the team or the heavy closer or or whatever term you want to want to use there. And don't really recognize early on that the real leverage in their new role is taking the six, seven, 10 people that report to them, coaching, developing, inspiring, holding accountable. Because if you can take 10 people and you can get 2% growth out of 10 people, yeah. that's far more than you're ever going to do as an individual. Yeah. And so for me, the biggest gap has been in that particular area where people try to get too involved in the things that they are historically good at and don't make the transition to now being a leader and saying, how do, what's my biggest lever to success? And it's generally not doing what you did before. It's thinking about how do you take that team and make that team better? Man, yes, right on. Uh, unfortunately, people get caught up in thinking, I'm just going to keep doing the same thing, only maybe a little bit more of it, but I'm going to earn a whole lot more. And more often than not, the, there is not a direct correlation between effort in, earnings out, when now you are tasked to lead others. Uh, it's just a different tool set and, and set of muscles that you're using. It is. And, and you know, I, I use the analogy often when I'm trying to help new leaders understand this concept. I use the analogy of like Avon or Mary Kay. And, okay. you know, I often say because Mary Kay is based in Dallas, you see a lot of those pink Cadillacs driving around town. Yeah. And, I talk to people and say, those people earned pink Cadillacs, not because they sold the most amount of product. Mm -hmm. They earned those pink Cadillacs because they built networks. They built teams and they coached and they developed and they taught and they inspired those teams. And they got a little bit off the top of that, but the the kind of sheer momentum of that size is what led them to success, not being the best seller of a Mary Kay or Avon product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was uh, rather leading larger teams uh, and, and helping those individual contributors succeed, right? Correct. And you had also mentioned um, accountability. Uh, I'm curious, were you referring to developing and and, um, and setting that up in individual contributors or, or sales managers? 
Um, well, actually both. So, you know, I've led individual contributors um, and led sales leaders. And, and so for me, it's really, you got to have accountability at all levels. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about sales and business is it's really easy to keep score. Mm. And so, you know, when, when that score is less than the expectation, there's accountability on everybody up and down the food chain, so to speak. That, that, that number is getting hit or it's not getting hit. And if it's not, what are we going to do to ensure that we do move forward to hit it? The Sales Career Leveling Podcast is brought to you by Zagworks, your premier sales recruiting firm dedicated to helping sales leadership executives recruit the best sales talent for their teams. We are the guarantee protecting you from costly sales, sales management, and sales leadership mishires. Connect with Michael G. Cox at zagworks.com. And let's explore what a top sales recruiting team can help you build. So how, how do you bridge the gap or what are the, the steps that one would take to try and ensure that you're getting that accountability, that buy-in from, the, from each person on, the, on that food chain? Well, you know, for me, it starts in the hiring process, really. <laughs> and, you know, looking for people who bring a competitive a zeal to the position. But also, you know, when I'm looking to hire, whether it's salespeople or individuals, I'm starting to set expectations and drive accountability in the interview hmm. to see how they're responding to that, to see if they're cringing or they're embracing that. And so what you want to do is bring on people who recognize that quite frankly, in business, we are paid to deliver a number. Now, you could probably say it a little bit smoother than that, a little softer, but bottom line is we're paid to deliver a number. Mm -hmm. And if we don't deliver that number, we invite people into our lives and into our business, you know, to understand what's taking place. And so for me, in the interview process, and even in coaching conversations with existing sellers or existing leaders, it's about continually driving that thought home that, Hey, we are accountable to a number. Now, you know, it's got to be that we got to deliver that number in the right way, the ethical way, yeah. um, you know, using the right processes. But bottom line is it's easy to keep score and we are charged with delivering a number. Hmm. And, and in situations where you don't see that happening, what is the turnaround? Um, or maybe you could give me an example of what you've used in the past to get that turnaround. Well, for me, it's really about having crucial conversations. And, you know, the second thing I would say that I often see in ineffective leaders or new leaders is their inability to have a crucial conversation. Hmm. And that's also a book that I've referenced, I reference frequently uh, because I think it's very impactful and it's very true. And I've seen that in my experience. And, you know, there's often uh, leaders who think they have to make what's called the fool's choice. And that choice is I can either have a great relationship with you, Michael, or I can have a crucial conversation with you. Well, you don't have to make that choice. I can have a great relationship with you and have a crucial conversation providing coaching, critique, feedback, and accountability. And so I think it really boils down to your team understanding what your role is a leader. And I often try to ground my team in the fact that they see my role is to help make them successful in their role at develop them in a role and develop them in a path to future roles. And when people understand that 
the intent of my crucial conversations is help, development, ascension in the organization. Those crucial conversations quite often are a little bit easier to have. But when they don't understand that that's your motivation and that's your intent, then sometimes that crucial conversation could be perceived in a negative way or go sideways. So for me, I, I often make sure my team is grounded in understanding that the coaching critique and feedback I give is because I care about you and I want you to succeed in your current role and I want to prepare you for future roles. And I often tell people, don't get distraught when I'm providing coaching critique and feedback. Get distraught when I stop. Hmm. Yeah, that's that, that could be dangerous. Um, I, I, when, when I've led teams in the past, granted they were recruiting, it was, um, I called it uh, tough recruiter conversations. And sometimes it was between myself and the, the, the individual recruiter, but more often than not, it was there are certain conversations that need to be had in a, in a process. And if we're not having those, uh, things will be led astray. Um, and, and we never drift towards success. We're always drifting away from it. Going back now to coaching and development. Give me some examples of what coaching and development done right should look like. So let's, let's, so for me, what it looks like is, first of all, you have to observe what your leader or your individual contributors are doing. So if you're leading sellers, you got to be in the car or you've got to be sitting next to them so that you can observe them on sales calls. Mm -hmm. uh, without that observation, you really don't have a, a foundation from which you can coach. So you've got to be able to observe what, what they are doing. Uh, the second thing I would say is this, you know, as a leader in business, or there's so many things that are coming at you. And sometimes coaching gets shoved to the side because of all of these things that are coming at you. And as a leader, you have to make a conscious decision that coaching is very important to you, to your team, and to your, your collective success. So you've got to be disciplined that you invest the time to do that. So for me, it's about observing what they are doing in a role. Um, it's about then having conversations with them. Let's say it's an individual contributor and you know, you're, you're going out and you're going to make a couple calls with them. Um, for me, before we get out of the car to go to the first call, there's a couple questions to be asked. You know, who are we here to see? Why are we here to see them? Do they know we're here to see them for that reason? What's going to make this a good call? And what role would you like me to play? Mm. And then you go execute the sales call and you observe. Now, as a leader in a sales call, I always try to take a back seat. And one of the, one of the techniques I would use is I would have the salesperson not introduce me as the manager or the vice president or what have you, because then the the prospect or the customer's attention goes straight to you. Yep. So I always try to take a back seat and just say, hey, just introduce me as Bill. Then once the call is over, we get back in the car. And before we back out of the parking lot, I want to get some feedback. Because once you start driving, you're losing a lot of somebody's attention. And if we do it in the car, we're doing it almost in the moment. Mm-hmm. So the questions in the car before we leave are, how do you think that went? Did we achieve our call objective? Uh, did we move the customer down the path you said you wanted to? What do you think you could have done better? Even so, if it went perfectly. Even if it went perfectly. 
And so, you know, part of the reason I asked the first question I ask is, how do you think that went? Is that helps me get a gauge on where that salesperson's bar is relative to a good sales call. So if I think the sales call was not good and they say it was great, well, I now have a difference of where the bars are in terms of what good looks like. So I need to recalibrate their bar. So when I'm not with them, they're self-evaluating their sales calls based on the right bar and not the one that they may potentially have. So once I'm finished a series of sales calls, whether it's a half day or a full day, then at the end of that, I'm sitting down and having a summary conversation with them. Hey, what did we talk about today? What did you do well? Where do you have opportunities for improvement? And how can you go about improving those? Hmm. I'm keeping track of that. So in my coaching conversations with them or my subsequent ride-alongs, I can look to see if the improvements we talked about are being embedded in how they go to, go to market from there. You're certainly giving me a very humanized version of that pre-call and post-call, the pre-call planning, the post-call analysis, and understanding how things can be improved. I'm curious with regard to development in, 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 of sales reps, most will go through a sales training, which is typically product and how, how we position ourselves type sales. So I'm curious, what type of sales development have you seen that has been successful for individual contributors? Well, I will say this, you know, so you talked about somebody coming on board and going through a week or two of training. And that training you had mentioned is could be product-based, it could be sales-based, it's here's our value prop, here's how to overcome objections. Yep. But what happens when you send people to training, all you end up with is trained people. Mm-hmm. And quite there's a lot of data, Michael, that shows that the amount of training that gets retained one week out, two months out, six months out, it goes off a cliff exponentially. Yes. Because sales leadership does not reinforce and keep what you learned in training alive with you. And so for me, it's really about first and foremost, do your sales leaders understand what their salespeople are getting trained on? If they don't know and understand, how are they going to reinforce it? So for me, it's important to make sure that the sales leaders either attend that training or have a very, very clear, thorough understanding of what their folks are being trained on so they can make sure that's not just a trained person, but a person where that behavior and that approach has been embedded so they can utilize what they've been taught to be successful in the business. Mm. And so quite often, you know, that that's almost this outsource type of a scenario. It says, all right, I just hired Michael. Michael, go to, go over here for two weeks and learn the business. And then you come back and I treat you like a seasoned seller starting on day one because you've been trained. You should know how to do everything. Yeah. As you were mentioning, uh, sales management, sales leadership should know about what's going on in sales training. Uh, I, I remember situations where a you know, VP of sales, a, certainly a CEO was involved in developing the sales training, but I do not recall having sales managers uh, either attend the training, get involved in the building of that initial, that boot camp, right? Sales boot camp, um, or knowing what was going on in there. So typically there was a, a bit of a lurch where you're learning, you're learning, let's say it's a one month sales training program. 
And then when you go, when you go live, there's a bit of a lurch because things are so different. Well, and you know, to that point, and I'm going to, I'm going to reiterate something I said earlier, but I think training dollars are probably the most wasted dollars that companies spend (laughs) because they do spend a lot of money to send people to training, but then it seems to stop as soon as they get on the plane to come home. And if that is not reinforced by their leader, you just wasted a lot of money. And so a real good training program is not only the event of sending my new seller to this week or two week process, but it's the next six, 12 months out. What are our checks and balances? How do we reinforce it? How do we coach to it? How do we modify behavior so that that training gets embedded in what this person does? But unfortunately in too many um, organizations, training is an event and then it's done as soon as the person gets on the plane to head home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the majority of that training is often focused on product. Yeah. Learn about the product. <clears throat> so it, it's really more product training than, than sales training. And, and to that even point, if, I'm, sorry? I'm sorry. I was going to say to that point, if, if, if I'm a new salesperson and you spend a majority of the time teaching me about the tech and the spec of my product, guess what I'm going to go talk to the customers and prospects about? Oh, yeah. And now I'm not having a consultative value-based conversation. I'm having a conversation that my unit has 400 more RPMs than the other one. And, and that's not what people care about. Mm-hmm. And yet that's what we taught our seller. And then we wonder why our seller's out having a tech and spec conversation versus how can I help you reduce costs? How can I bring value to your business? What are your challenges in your organization? Yeah. They're only talking about what they were taught. Yeah. Well, that's what we showed them. Yep. Um, something you had mentioned earlier was um, sales management and also definitely sales individual contributors have a lot coming at them. They've got metrics to meet, activity levels to, to meet and achieve. And, and obviously the end goal in mind is and this is a bit antiquated, but if you do this many calls and you have this many of those resulting conversations, then you're going to have this many that are actual prospects. And what happens is they find, I find that many sales reps start to complain or I hear them complain about uh, being so busy and yet struggling with productivity. And, um, I'm curious, first of all, I'm sure you've seen that. And have you seen ways that have helped get people uh, turned around and maybe focused on, on, on the things that matter versus the whirlwind that they're stuck in? Yeah, so I have seen that. And I spent a lot of time studying that and, and observing salespeople who are really, really good Uh, and salespeople who are not so good at that. And here's what I mean. What I have come to learn over the years, Michael, is when somebody tells you they're overwhelmed with all the things coming at them, more often than not, I've found that that is self-imposed. Okay. And the really good salespeople are the ones that are able to kind of sift through everything and figure out what the most impactful things are that they can go do. And they make the best choices with their time. Mm. 
And I often tell people that you have time to do anything you want to do. It's just a question of what you choose to do and choose not to do. And I often, to kind of hammer that point home, with, when I'm with a leader or a salesperson and it's during normal business hours, I will ask them this question. Do you have time to go play golf in a half an hour? <laughs> and inevitably, most people's knee-jerk reaction is, no, I don't. And I said, well, think about what I asked you. Do you have time to go play golf in a half hour? Because I do. But I choose to not because I'm going, I choose to do something else in a half an hour. Okay. And that kind of hammers home the concept that almost everything you do as a salesperson is a choice. Now, granted, there's some things that are not a choice. You've got to put some CRM information in. You've got to hit the KPIs. I get it. But beyond that, what separates the really good salespeople from the not so good salespeople is how they choose to invest their time. And they tend to be far more productive Whereas the other people tend to be busy. Yeah. And for me, the difference between the two is, you know, busy doesn't advance the cause. It doesn't put a new opportunity in the pipeline. It doesn't advance it through the pipeline. It doesn't bring it to closure. Whereas productive, those are the people that are making great choices with their time to say, hey, as a salesperson, I am charged with a new opportunity, moving an existing opportunity or closing an opportunity. What are the choices I can make today with my time that are going to lead to one of those three outcomes? And so in summary, for me, it's really about you think about the day, how many thousands of decisions you're going to make today, I'm going to make today about what I'm going to do with my time. Mm -hmm. And quite often when I go back to that first 90 days, I've seen quite frequently salespeople who maybe were promoted from the operation side of the business. Well, so what do they know? The operation side of the business. So as a salesperson, they may tend to gravitate to some operational type of tasks and activities. Whereas your more productive, successful salesperson is engaging the resources to get those activities and those exercises done so that they can invest a disproportionate amount of their time in front of customers. Okay, so um, first of all, there is an over-reliance or, or too much focus on those vanity metrics. Number of cold calls, um, because it's easy to say, well, if you do this, you're going to get this. But when it, it just, it, more often than not, that doesn't work out. And, and I've seen senior account executives, major account executives. I've even seen senior major account executives and some of those titles are getting a little ridiculous, but they're, they're not, you, you look at them and it's as though when you make a comparison between A and B and A looks like they're really busy, cold call, cold call, doing, doing the work, doing the work, the notes, everything. And then you look at B and, and th that individual seems to have a lot of time in his hands. Um, but that person is bringing in some very, some much larger accounts, much larger deal sizes with much healthier levels of gross profit margin. You start to wonder who's got it right. And, well, and 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. And, and, and just to, to wrap that up, I've also seen where that individual that isn't doing as much of the activity but is being more <clears throat> successful is often getting dinged or, or, or hit by people that are saying, well, you're not hitting your, your call metrics, your call time or your number of calls. And, and sometimes we've got to leave individuals alone when we realize what's most important. Well, I would agree with that. And I, I believe you've tapped into an, an interesting challenge that's occurring in, in a lot of companies. And you call them vanity metrics. I, I haven't heard that term before, but I, I love it. I probably will steal it moving forward. Yeah. But All you have the, to do is give me, give me credit uh, twice and then it's yours. Deal. <laughs> so, so, you know what those vanity metrics don't really tell you? What's the quality of all of those interactions? Yeah. What's the quality of all those touches? And so to your point, you know, I could look at a Salesforce report and say, wow, Michael's really busy. But then I look at your production and say, wow, well, he's not, he's not bringing home any of the revenue that we need him to bring. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, that goes back to conversations we had earlier about, well, what's the sales leader doing to help? Because for me, if you're making all of those calls and you have all of those interactions, but you're not moving the dial, that points to a quality of interaction issue. Yeah. And so as a sales leader, that goes back to what I talked about earlier. Are you observing that person and are you coaching and developing that person? And I think the challenge is quite, quite often is all of these metrics have dominated too many conversations and quality has been shoved aside when, in fact, you talk about the person whose metrics may not look quite as robust, but their production is better. Yeah. They're having far more quality interactions, generally speaking, maybe with fewer touches, but that it's leading to a higher level of output. Yeah. And so for me, I often look at this formula that I'd call quantity, quality, and focus. And so what that means is, are we making the right, are we making the, the right frequency of calls with the right degree of quality on the right people? Mm. And so in theory, Michael, you and I could hang up the phone and we could go make 25 sales calls in person today. But in order to make 25 calls, they can't be good. Mm. Or they have we can to be go- very quick. Right. And uh, probably not very productive if I have to bust out 25. Right. And the flip side of that is we could go make one great one. Mm-hmm. But the right number somewhere in between those two. And if we make a lot of great calls on the wrong people, that's not going to deliver. And so for me, the real formula is the right frequency of calls with the right degree of quality on the right people. That's the formula for success. And if any one of those gets overweighted, you get that machine not humming as well as you want. And so to go back to our conversation, what I often find missing in that formula, people get the quantity part because we have all those vanity metrics. That's your first, your first point. People, people get the quantity part because you have the vanity metrics. Yeah. They don't get the quality part because there's no report I can go to to see if you're making quality calls or not. Yep. Now, I could look at your pipeline. And I could maybe draw some, 
some um, results from the pipeline to say, if Michael's making all these touches and his pipeline's not there, then his touches are probably not quality touches. But that has to be an additional layer of work that the sale leader, sales leader goes through to observe that salesperson and then coach and develop. And generally what happens is when you make a salesperson better, their calls with the customers are more engaging and deeper and take a little longer. Therefore, the metrics tend to drop a little bit because now they're engaged in higher quality conversations that take longer. Yeah. Very different when you start to focus on the quantity versus only the qual. I'm sorry, the quality versus only the quantity, right? Well, and you know, to that point, uh, I've also experienced uh, salespeople who will go into an account for the first time and then they may get a second appointment in that account, but they can't get the third, fourth, and fifth appointment. And I often tell people that customers and prospects will see you if you have valuable interactions with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, if, and valuable interactions means it's about them their business, how you can help them reduce problems, reduce downtime, increase productivity, increase revenue. Yeah. And if your first couple of calls are valuable to them, they will see you the third, fourth, and fifth time. If you bring zero value to them on the first couple of calls, the gatekeeper now locks the gate with a padlock and you have a very difficult, if not impossible time to get back in because you didn't bring value to that person in your first couple of interactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, far too many uh, sales calls, are, they, they begin in a very transactional environment or, or relationship. And, and that transactional approach leads to, the fact is it, it can work. Everything works, right? Just not everything works all the time. So if you're, if you're going about it very transactionally, it's call, 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 and eventually get to somebody that actually is in, is in a buying state, ready to make a decision, and, and you've got that. But you've, you've burned so many other future opportunities because they smelled your commission breath. And they could tell that you were in it just for that quick hit. And unfortunately, you didn't pursue that with value for the prospect in mind, or you, you weren't being consultative. You were simply being transactional. And, and unfortunately, what I have found in, in jumping back into sales now that I'm independent is the the overwhelming majority of the success that I have had has been when I have taken a more consultative approach and, and not stressed about, am I going to get this deal today so I can fill a role tomorrow and be on to the next one. And, and that just simply does not work. And, and not, and not being overly concerned about where this, possible engagement may lead. It may end up being a direct placement. It may end up being some sort of a contract role. It may end up being some sort of a, uh, of a consultative type engagement where we're helping with something that's totally out of left field, but that we have capabilities in. So 
the, the, the approach is, is, is key. Well, and, you know, to maybe cap off this, this subject, there was a study done many, many years ago, but it's still very relevant. And really the study was, you know, what is it that buyers or prospects look for in a salesperson? And it was a multiple page, you know, result, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Mm. It's a pretty powerful statement, but buyers said, I'm looking for a salesperson who gets to know me, gets to know my business, understand my business, help me pre prevent problems and help me solve problems. Mm. And when you can do those things, you now get invited into that person's world and to your point earlier, when you come in with a transactional approach, yeah. and you're not doing those things, getting to know them, get to know their business, help them avoid problems, help them solve problems. They just see you as somebody who's a peddler and they're trying to solve a problem or avoid a problem. And so there's zero value to them in that approach. Yep, absolutely. So with regard to, and I know you had mentioned this earlier, some of these, um, the, the, the coaching, the development of individuals, advancement within sales career, a lot of this can be uh, improved and, and solved for at the very beginning, which is the hiring process. I'm curious as a sales management professional, as a sales leadership executive, what would you say that you're typically looking for when hiring, um, let's say, individual contributors? I'm looking for what I would call the unteachables. Um, I'm looking for somebody who's got the drive, uh, somebody who's got passion, somebody who is competitive, somebody who is results-oriented. I, I can help maybe increase some of those things, but I can't teach you passion if you don't have it. I probably can't take a non-competitive person and teach them to be competitive. Mm. So I'm looking for those things that either you can't teach or in teaching them takes a very long time mm -hmm. because I can teach you or the organization can teach you the product, the value proposition, the go-to-market strategy. Uh, but for me, I'm looking for those type of intangibles that you just bring on day one and we can teach you the rest. Yeah. And same question with regard to sales management. What I have found is sales managers are, are, are really hard to find. So what is it that you're typically looking for when considering hiring sales managers? And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm looking for somebody who gets the fact that they are a sales leader and they approach the business from that perspective. Um, so they're going to drive um, performance. They're going to have a sales management process. Um, they're not afraid to have that crucial conversation we talked about. And they recognize that the biggest leverage they have to success is the people on their team and not necessarily them as an individual. So are they going to invest in their team through coaching, development, crucial conversations and feedback? Do they understand the fact, again, that their leverage is helping the team get better? Um, and do they also have the ability to win people's hearts first 
Um, because I found as a leader is if you can win the hearts of your team, the minds quite often will come along for the ride at some point. But if you, if you first start off with the mind, it's a, a quite an effort to get the heart. So looking for somebody that can really um, win the hearts of the teams, inspire, engage, uh, and drive even more passion that people bring to the team. And, you know, yeah. that, that's really what it's about. It, again, it's that force multiplier to kind of use a corporate buzzword. But boy, if I can get 10 people and I can improve each one of those people 5%, think about how much movement and momentum that creates. Absolutely. Rather than what we see too often is the sales manager who has become the glorified closer that's traveling from deal to deal um, and getting involved in the tail end of a sales process uh, versus replicating his or her uh, previous success as, a, as an individual contributor in each of the individuals that they are leading. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, there is a time and a place for a sales manager to come in and help close a deal. Um, but to your point, if they're the only closer in their region or their district or whatever it's called, mm -hmm. um, they can only be so many places uh, at once. And so, you know, there are some sales leaders that will run around trying to get to every opportunity to help close it to your point versus saying, Hey, if I take a step back, how do I get this done? Well, it's about making their team better yep. so they don't have to run around and be that ultimate closer. They can be more strategic in where they go to help close the bigger deals or help get deals out, you know, out of the pipeline that may be stuck in the pipeline versus running around helping close every single deal, regardless of how easy or hard that may be. Mm -hmm. you, you have a serious problem when you become the the bottleneck or the choke point right. for a team. I think relieving that bottleneck comes from, as we've already, I think we beat this dead horse, is coaching, developing, developing your team to improve by 5% or improve by whatever percent to get them producing more. So, well, I appreciate you coming on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'd like to have you back on and, and perhaps discussing um, the, the, the next tiers up in a sales org chart, which are having conversations about what sales looks like beyond that uh, sales management level, what the, the focuses are or should be at the, at the director level and at that vice president level and the differences that are there. Because again, going from individual contributors to, to managing sales executives is a totally different, uh, you're, you're stepping into, into a totally different realm. And the same thing happens at each clip level as you climb that org chart. But I enjoyed our conversation today, Bill, and look forward to having another one soon. Michael, I enjoyed it well, and I too look forward to having another one. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us on the Sales Career Leveling Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and if you would be so kind, share this podcast with a fellow sales professional. 
If you are a sales professional and would like to connect, have a guest, and or topic suggestion, please find Chris Stinson and Michael G. Cox on LinkedIn or email careerleveling at gmail.com.